University Baptist Church is a faith community striving to think critically, live creatively, and love continually in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. We gather on Sunday mornings at 5775 Highland Road between Lee Drive and Kenilworth Parkway. Visit ubc-br.org or at UBCBR on Facebook for more information. Well, at the turn of the 20th century, the pursuit of manned-aired aircraft was like the dot-com and app race of our time. Everyone was pursuing it. And in 1896, Samuel Pierpont Langley successfully flew an unmanned aerodrome 4,200 feet. And as a result, the War Department gave him $50,000 along with his own $25,000 to help fund a project for the first manned aircraft. You might be thinking, that's not a lot of money. Well, today's dollar, that's the equivalent of $1.9 billion. And Langley had all the tools that you can imagine to make the project success. He was an educated man. He was a professor at Harvard. He held a seat with the Smithsonian Institute. He hired the best hands that money could buy. And uh, he spent all that he had to do this. The New York Times followed him wherever he went in the production of this project. And after years of studying, pouring the equivalent of $1.9 billion into an aircraft, it was time for this to, to happen. And so with the world literally watching, he gathered on the Hudson River. Now what you imagine is what's up there, which is what it was, a houseboat on a river. And essentially what they had was this craft that, imagine a rubber band, an elastic band being pulled back, and it would push the aircraft forward into the air. Except what happened upon takeoff was that the wings of the device ripped off, plunging the pilot into the Hudson River Man failed at flight. A few hundred miles away in Dayton, Ohio, two brothers began to put into practice a dream they had since childhood, which was to make man fly. As bicycle shop owners, their resources were somewhat limited. They had no formal education. They had everything that, that the Langley did not. It was a drive. And so the Wright brothers spent a great deal of time. They observed how birds flew. They noticed how when they soared in the air, the wind flowed over their curved surface of their wings, and they began to put this into practice in building this craft. And for years, they, they tested, and they failed, and they learned. And yet, despite their setbacks and failures, they wanted to see man fly. So they packed up their equipment and ventured down to the sand dunes of Kitty Hawk, North Carolina. Small side note, the first marathon I ran was in Kitty Hawk, and I thought, oh, let's run the Outer Banks because it's flat. And it was about mile four that I realized, oh, this is why the Wright brothers came and flew <laughs> here. And on December the 17th, 1903, the brothers flipped a coin to see who would attempt to be the first in flight. Wilbur won. And they successfully were able to put a flying object into the air. It flew for 59 seconds at the pace of a jog, essentially. So what's the difference? What's the difference between them that seems so obvious? Well, Samuel Pierpont Langley had, had the goal of becoming very rich and very famous. Langley's pursuit of why he wanted to put a man in flight was, was centered on what and not why. His team was all working to reap the benefits of being the first to do all this and look at the results. The Wright brothers were very different. They, they focused on why 
They wanted to see man fly, but no matter how long it took, no matter how many failed attempts, the world was there to see Langley fail, but no one was there to see the Wright brothers succeed. In fact, it took three days for the world to hear this first in flight. The Wright brothers pushed forward to innovate from 59 seconds to a year later, five minutes of flight. Langley, upon hearing that the Wright brothers had succeeded in being the first, simply quit, never to touch the project again. As one author put it, no one ever accomplished anything big or worth throwing a celebratory fist in the air by staying in their comfort zone. They risk ridicule and failure and sometimes even death. For the last several months, we've been on this series of Start With Why, this conversation about why we do what we do. We've examined our purpose and drive as University Baptist Church, founding in our core values of being God-centered, relying on the Bible's authority, embracing equality, engaging in discipleship, and loving others. Yet what it requires of us is to contemplate what it takes to live out our why. Why do we do what we do? And are we willing to step forward in faith to make sure that we live out our why no matter the cost? And so I want us to cap off our series this morning with asking the question of, so what? What's next? For this, let's turn in our scripture to 2 Samuel chapter 24, verse 18. And as you're turning, let me lay the context for you. Um, this is a story uh, that's somewhat out of order. Um, in chapter 23, we read that David dies and gives his final words. But in chapter 24, David is alive and well. How did that happen? Well, there's some reason they reversed the order of these texts. The beginning of the story does raise some tremendous theological debates because 2 Samuel 24:1 reads, Again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel and incited David against them, saying, Go and take a census of Israel and of Judah. Why does this raise a theological debate? Well, the first thing we need to learn is that God gets mad at David for doing the census, yet it's God that tells David to do the census. So why would God tell David to do something that brings him to the point of failure? Additionally, the book of James tells us that... that uh, sorry, I just got really distracted because the statue of David went up there. <laughs> not that... Okay, that sounded really bad. It was just because I was not expecting to see it up there. So why else? Uh, well, we learned that the book of James tells us that God does not tempt us, that we in our own minds tempt us. The second reason this raises theological questions is the parallel uh, verses of this in First Chronicles chapter 21 reads this way, Satan rose up against Israel and incited David to take a census of Israel. Wait a second, was it Satan or was it God that incited David to do the census? Compound this with the very uh, question that the very translation of the Hebrew word for Satan, Hasatan, means heavenly district attorney. Wait, what? So is it God or is it Satan that is inciting David to do this? Who is asking this? And on compound this all, it says that David later on will take credit for actually doing this and driving himself to do it. It raises some very difficult theological questions as we enter into this text. And what raises the even more uh, important question is, what's wrong with taking a census in the first place? Even David's right-hand man, jo uh, Joab, questions the king on his motives of why he's doing this. And contextually speaking, we need to remember that the kingdom of Israel is a theocracy, meaning that there is a belief that God has anointed a king, but the king is just a divinely inspired tool for God. God is in charge. In the past, God had the people take a census to collect 
who they were and how many they had in order to build this tabernacle in the book of Exodus. However, David's motivation for a census came down to a bureaucratic control of his resources. Most likely, David wanted a headcount of the people for the basis of administration and taxation and conscription. In short, David made a bold move to compile his resources instead of trusting God's leadership and provisions. Let me state that again. David made a bold move to compile his resources instead of trusting God's leadership and provisions. It is so important that we understand the context of the passage that we're reading. So let's stop right here and let's consider putting ourselves in David's shoes for just a moment. I think there's a bold point that can be made here about our relationship to God individually and collectively as a church. As followers of Jesus, we are called to journey with Christ in faith. The word disciple is the Greek word akulutheu, which means to follow or to be the same as. So the invitation to follow Jesus is an invitation to soul fidelity to Jesus, to give Jesus our loyalty, our faithfulness. And yet, and yet, we have a lot of control issues with God. Consider when Jesus is inviting the many disciples to follow him. It was a call to leave behind their work, their dreams, and their comfort so they could discover new work, new dreams, a new purpose through the kingdom of God. And this is the problem in the first place. The reason that we live such dualistic lives, we philosophically love the idea of following Jesus, receiving the grace of God, stepping into this eternal existence after life, but, and it's a really big but, are we not willing to submit ourselves to God? Placing our life and our control in the hands of God, how often do we take control of our lives instead of actually trusting God? Just like David, we choose to build up our little kingdoms to keep count of all of our resources so that we can know where we are going, when we are going there, and the way by which we can control it. Are we amassing our wealth and our resources and storing up for this winter and the 25 winters to come? Are we seeking first to be first and to be served instead of humbling ourselves and putting others before ourselves? Are we seeking to know everything because in knowledge of knowing everything, we know what will happen to us, pulling us to a place where we actually don't have to journey in faith with God? And at the root of it, we shape and mold God into our image and our ideals so that this faith of ours seems real and genuine. It feels faithful to us. We, like David, are taking a census of our life, of our work, of our resources, of all that we have and all that we want so that we can control what happens next in our life. And this happens individually. It happens collectively as a church community. Too often the church is too accustomed to planning and predicting and proceeding in what kind of model of what happens next. So we take a census not for taxation or administration or conscription, but for control and comfort and predictability. And James tells us that God opposes the proud, that God resists those who try to take complete control of their life. Are we more like David than we care to admit? Are we mousing our little kingdoms no doubt there's somebody here that says, Pastor, I don't have a little kingdom, like, at all. I ain't got no money. 
So what happens next in the narrative? In 2 Samuel chapter 24, verse 10 tells us that David is conscience-stricken after he has counted the fighting men and said to the Lord, I have sinned in what I have done. Now, Lord, I beg you to take away your guilt of your servant, for I have done a very foolish thing. But you would have thought the first verse of the text raised some theological questions. Verse 11 through 14 then tells us that God sends a messenger to give David some options. And the messenger says this in verse 13, Do you want three years of famine in the land, or three months of running from your enemies while they chase you down, or three days of epidemic on the country? Think it over and make up your mind. Wait a second. Why is God responding this way? Why would David have to choose the consequences of his disobedience? Did anybody ever have a parent that sent them out into the yard to pick out the stick that you were going to get a whipping with? Yeah, my parents did that, and I always went out and got the tiniest little sprig I could possibly find. Let's be clear on the three options that God is presenting to David. Three years of famine, or three months of fleeing from your enemies, that would have led probably to the death of the citizens along the way from the destruction of this army and the embarrassment of David, or option three is three days of plague. Is that really how God works? Doesn't this seem vengeful? Does this really seem like God would punish others because of David's foolish and prideful mistake? Instead of taking on personally the physical brunt of the repercussions of his ego trip, verse 14 tells us that David chose for the people to suffer. What a great king. If you already had some theological questions about this passage, then you'll really start to ask questions about Scripture when it says that an angel of death ravaged the people with a plague, within a few hours, 70,000 people were killed. Yet the Lord ceased this madness. The author points out in verse 16, the angel of death stopped at the property of Aruna the Jebusite. The angel specifically stopped at the threshing floor. We'll get back to that in a second. And at the word of the plague reached David, David cries out in confession to God, I have sinned, I, the shepherd, have done wrong. These are but sheep. But they, what have they done? Let your hand fully come on me and my family. And this is where we'll pick up with the text in verse 18. On that day in Gad, went to David and said to him, Go up and build an altar of the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. So David went up as the Lord had commanded through Gad. When Aruna looked and saw the king and his officials coming towards him, he went out and bowed down before the king with his face to the ground. Aruna said, why has my lord the king come to his servant? To buy your threshing floor, David answered, so I can build an altar to the lord. The plague on the people may be stopped. Aruna said to David, Let my lord the king take whatever he wishes and offer it up. Here are oxen for a burnt offering, and here is a threshing sledge and ox yokes for the wood. Your majesty, Aruna, gives all this to the king. Aruna also said to him, May the Lord, your God, accept you. Verse 24 says, But the king replied to Aruna, No, I insist on paying you for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord, my God, burnt offerings that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen and paid 50 shekels of silver for them. David built an offering to the Lord there and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then the Lord answers his prayer in behalf of the land and the plague of Israel was stopped. 
The king said to be a man after God's own heart was misguided. His control and egotism was propelling him to to make sure that he had the most of his resources because he lacked faith in God. And in David's brokenness and sorrow, he was brought to a place of repentant understanding. You see, David's admission of guilt in verse 10 was important. He recognizes that he is the one who made the major mistake. He admission, his admission of guilt was to dissolve the consequences of his actions. David's confession in verse 17 was the turning point of the text. He owned the fact that he made this mistake, that he chose the land of Israel to suffer instead of himself, and the restitution must be made for his error. Now, the cynic among us, myself included, would ask the question, how in the world is building an altar and making a sacrifice going to make up for the fact that 70,000 people died for David's ego? This is where we really get to the meat of the text. David realizes that it was his lack of faith, and his lack of faith has consequences. As an outward sign of an inward and spiritual conviction, David chose to pay the cost of his faithfulness to God. Let me repeat that. As an outward sign of his inward and spiritual convictions, David chose to pay the cost of his faithfulness to God. I adore this exchange between Arun and David. The landover, probably seeing the anguish on the king's faith, essentially says to the king, you can have whatever you want. I will give you everything you need for the sacrifice, the oxen, the equipment, the wood, the land. It's all yours. But I love how Eugene Peterson translates it in the message when he says this. No, I've got to buy it from you at a good price. I'm not going to offer God a sacrifice that has no sacrifice. David recognizes that he made the people pay for the cost of his pride, the cost of his greed, the cost of amassing this power. David recognizes that his ego and desire for control was a misstep in his faith journey. And while it's not going to make up for the fact that 70,000 people died for David's unfaithfulness, some biblical scholars have argued that the price David paid for Aruna's potential uh, was the same price as the potential taxes David would have received from the census. And so David pays the cost of his faithfulness to God by ridding himself of the very thing that brought him to this place in the first place, his ego, his greed, his hunger for power, expansion and conquest. I will not sacrifice to the Lord burnt offerings that cost me nothing. Consider that for a second. There's two fascinating stories that come to mind from the Gospels. The first one is in the Gospel of John that tells us that Jesus has this mass of people following him. A mega pastor's dream come true. Numbers, numbers, numbers. Except Jesus messes it all up because he looks at the people and says, unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you can have no part of me. The response from the people are like, do what? And John tells us that many left him that day and never followed him again. There's a second story from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9, in which it tells us that three consecutive people come up to uh, follow Jesus. Wonderful, praise God. Except the first one comes up and Jesus says to him, uh, the foxes have holes and the birds have nests, but this man, the Son of Man, has no place to rest his head. In other words, I'm homeless. Says so the guy walks away from Jesus. The second person comes up to Jesus and says, Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go, but first let me go back and bury my father. And Jesus responds to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you come and seek the kingdom of God. 
Is anyone surprised that Luke reports the man walks away from Jesus? And still another man proclaims, I will follow you wherever you go, but let me first go back and say goodbye to my family. And Jesus responds to him, No one who puts his hands to the plow and looks back is fit for service of the kingdom. And Luke says the man walks away. I mean, doesn't Jesus want people to follow him? Isn't that the purpose of this whole thing? Jesus, to follow Jesus, is, is this idea that we've talked about. That it's, it's to follow, to become the same as. But also, following Jesus means that there is a cost. Because if it was easy, then everybody would do it. If it were easy, then Jesus would not be inviting us into a new way of living and thinking. But we've made religion in America so easy. It's just part of our weekly routine. We, we, we get up, we get dressed, we get the family out the door, most likely in a rush, which causes an argument on the way to church. But then when we get to church, everybody's all smiles when we get out of the car. We go in, we sit in worship, we, we sit down, we stand up, we sit down, we stand up, we sing a few songs, we put our check in the offering plate, we listen to the sermon. If the pastor's feeling really great, 40 minutes where we're looking at our watch the whole time, we sing another song and then we leave, and within 60 to 80 minutes we have checked off our weekly to-do list and we move on to the next thing. Religion is easy. Following rules is easy. It's especially easy when we shape the rules and religion to fit into our perspective and customs. And as we consider the core values of UBC, why we do what we do, being God-centered, relying on the Bible's authority, seeking equality for all people, following Jesus and loving others, these things cost us something. If there were no cost, then these things would be easy and they would be meaningless. Consider what it costs to live out our why. Consider the cost of living into who God has called us to be as a faith community. Are we willing to offer God what cost us something? What cost us everything? Early in the 20th century, English adventurer Ernest Shackleton set out to explore Antarctica. A Norwegian explorer had just become the first explorer to reach the South Pole, and so that left one remaining conquest. The land part of the expedition was started in the frigid waters of the Weldon Sea and below South America, traveling 1,700 miles, uh, the pole to the Ross Sea and down to New Zealand. And on December the 5th, 1914, Shackleton and a crew of 70, 27 men set out on this ship called the Endurance. But the crew of the Endurance reached, never reached the continent. Because within a couple weeks of their trip, they began to see mile after mile of packed ice. Soon they found that the Endurance was locked into the ice. And on November the 21st, the crew watched their, sink, their ship sink into the frigid waters. And they're stranded on the ice. The crew boarded their lifeboats and landed on this tiny island called Elephant Island, Roll Tide. And Shackleton left behind all but five men and embarked on this hazardous journey of 800 miles to try to find help. And what makes this story so remarkable was that in this whole ordeal, no one died. There's no story of cannibalism. Nobody got really hungry and wanted to eat someone else. There was no mutiny. 
And this wasn't luck. It's because Shackleton found the right people who were passionate about why they were doing what they were doing. Here's the advertisement that he ran in the London Times. It simply read, Men wanted for hazardous journey. Small wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return, doubtful, honor and recognition in case of success. See, Shackleton hired only the people who believed in why they were doing what they were doing. When people believe in why they are doing what they were doing, they commit themselves to even something like the endurance phase. And as we consider our core values, why we do what we do, are we willing to do what it takes to see them become a reality? It's one thing for us to perfectly pin theologically inspired values, and it's a wholly different thing to live them out together. We strive to be God-centered, but is our understanding of God limited to how we have fixed God into an assumed theological box and turn we have to limit our understanding of God. Are we willing to step into this brilliant and unlimited understanding of who God simply is? Or do we simply have a belief in God? Or do we have faith that God is calling us to live into the way of Jesus? We strive to have the Bible as the source of authority in our lives, but are we willing to deconstruct and reconstruct our understanding of God through healthy spiritual dialogue together? Are we willing to think deeply about what the Bible is where it comes from, the context of its book, the deep implications that it has for our life. When we know that Scripture calls us to seek equality for all people, but will we be a faith community that limits these rights to those that fit into a particular label? Are we willing to seek equality beyond the confines of this faith community and into Baton Rouge? Does the freedom of God's love and grace pour out of our lives and into the lives of others, no matter their gender or their ethnicity or their sexuality or their economic status or their political affiliation or their religious practices or their worth to us? Will we let petty differences and perspectives of non-essential things of our faith entrench us against one another or are we willing to celebrate the diversity that we have and celebrate and serve one another? Are we willing to seek and follow Jesus, allowing him to transform our way of thinking and living into something that reflects the kingdom of God? Will we strive to help each other through deep spiritual dialogue and intentional community together? You see, it's easy for us to write these statements. But do we believe in why we do what we do? And are we willing to step out in faith to see them become a reality? Are we willing to give God what cost us everything? Our focus, our dedication, our resources, our passions, our giftedness, and our strengths. People wanted for hazardous and extraordinary journey, small financial payout, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return, doubtful, Profound fulfillment and expansion of the kingdom of God in case of success. So what? Will we live into our...